February 20, 2019. Zion Williamson, a freshman phenom widely touted as the next LeBron James, and his Duke teammates prepare for their first matchup of the season against North Carolina. The intense Tobacco Road rivalry, spanning nearly a century and hailed as one of the greatest in all of sports, rarely disappoints, and the lure of Williamson has disrupted the marketplace. The cheapest ticket available is nearly $3,000, several hundred more than the cheapest Super Bowl ticket just two weeks prior. A star-studded sellout crowd, including former President Barack Obama, is buzzing inside Cameron Indoor Stadium. Williamson and the Blue Devils have jumped back up to number one in the polls, while the Tar Heels aren't far behind, currently sitting in eighth. Even with all the history between the two teams, Williamson is the headliner. The 18-year-old, who grew nine inches between 8th and 10th grade and quickly rose to fame for his sensational dunking ability, has a projected earning potential in the billions. With all the hype, no one is prepared for what is about to happen. Duke wins the opening tip, and then... Slipping and injured is Zion Williamson. Back the other way, a layup for Cam Johnson. And 36 seconds into the game, Zion Williamson is down. He blew through his shoe. Yeah. Look at his wow. look at his left shoe. He blew completely through the shoe, and then he started holding his right knee. I mean, his his shoe blew apart. I've never seen anything like that. Watch what he plants right here. Thirty-six seconds, and it was over. From Studio Spaz, in association with the Quinnipiac University Sports Journalism Department, this is Jump Ball stark examination of men's college basketball, past, present, and future. This is part two, face value. The magnitude of Williamson's injury and the bizarre manner in which it occurred was just another example of the blatant exploitation of student-athletes in the tempestuous history of the NCAA. Take, for example, the designation of student-athlete. This was a specific and intentional creation of the NCAA to avoid using the more appropriate designation of employee. As employees, players would have legal recourse for compensation and other benefits, such as health insurance, workers' compensation, and retirement funds. But by adding student-athlete to the vernacular, the NCAA protected its biggest asset, amateurism. Amateurism is the antiquated ideal that athletics are an adjunct to academics. In other words, sports are extracurricular, an opportunity to blow off some steam and have a little fun. Historically, this was once true, the origin of American football is rooted in military preparedness, as leading up to the Civil War, a vast majority of young men were physically unfit to serve. 
In this way, football was meant to discipline, much the same way as classroom instruction. It was not intended to be a lifelong endeavor, and any such talk was considered gobbledygook. However, it slowly became clear that Americans liked to be entertained, and sports provided great entertainment. In a capitalist society, the opportunity to make a buck could not and would not be ignored. But no one foresaw just how valuable that buck would become. The dawn of the television ushered in a new era where sports became prominent in nearly every home. In turn, engagement skyrocketed and cash flow soared. When Zion Williamson announced his commitment to Duke, he immediately became the face of college basketball. He was a walking, talking, dunking endorsement, but he never saw a dime. Yet when his shoe exploded 36 seconds into the most highly anticipated game of the season, his influence was immediately apparent. The morning after the incident, Nike, the apparel company responsible for the blunder, saw their stock plummet, amounting to a $1.1 billion loss. It was clearer than ever that the players held all the power, and you didn't need Job to understand the message that had just been sent. The players giveth a billion dollars, and the players taketh it away. The NCAA has remained steadfastly rigid in its protection of its athletes' amateur status. The current Division I manual that all athletes agree to abide by is thicker than most textbooks and even more arduous to decode. Each one of the 440 pages is full of contradictions and questionable practices. One of the most questionable practices, for which opposition has escalated in recent years, surrounds a player's inability to command their own name, image, and likeness, or NIL. Players are prohibited from using their collegiate athlete status for financial gain. This includes any ventures established prior to their arrival on campus. For example, social media influencers, such as YouTubers, must demonetize their videos and remove any product endorsements. Meanwhile, schools exploit their players to sell tickets and merchandise. Even without the name on the back, it's clear that all sales of a Duke jersey touting number one are a direct result of Zion Williamson. And it doesn't end there. Two months following Shoegate, as Duke advanced through the NCAA tournament, a New Jersey vendor sold over 3,000 replicas of Williamson's Spartanburg Day School jersey, his high school jersey. And it's still being sold today. Overlooked, is the fact that Williamson's universally hyped career could have ended on that near-fateful day. As a direct result of the incident, Williamson hyperextended his knee and missed the remainder of the regular season. He returned for the postseason and was immediately impactful, but a torn ligament or tendon could have been permanent and derailed his career. To add insult to injury, as athletes are not considered employees, Neither the NCAA nor its affiliated schools are required to cover medical expenses. This also includes death benefits for families of players who died as a direct result of their participation in a college sport. This came under severe scrutiny in 2013, when Kevin Ware, 
playing for Louisville, suffered a gruesome compound leg fracture early in the first half of the Cardinals' Midwest Regional Final matchup against Duke. Seen by millions watching the tournament on TV, it was clear that his surgery and recovery would be extensive. Louisville released a statement saying that all of Ware's medical expenses would be covered. However, they never specifically stated whether or not the school was contributing. In a rare exception, during NCAA championships, the organization provides supplemental insurance of up to $90,000, but a student must have their own coverage for that to apply. Thankfully, Ware was still on his parents' insurance and therefore adequately covered. But for students who rely on university-supplied insurance and are injured outside of an NCAA championship, the coverage is substandard and any serious expenses would be draining. In the wake of Williamson's exploding shoe, many players, analysts, even senators have begun to push for players to have the right to be compensated for their NIL. I connected with Tammy Gaw, an attorney who founded and is the executive director of Advantage Rule, a firm that provides worldwide consulting services to diverse clientele in the sports-specific aspects of business, law, medicine, and social justice, to get her thoughts on the potential impact of NIL compensation, and she was quick to point out the flawed crux of the NCAA's argument. Well, there's a couple of things there. First of all, to say that they are allowing a, a, an athlete to profit off their name, image, and likeness is somewhat problematic from the start because you can't allow someone the right to their own face and name. So really what we're talking about is lifting an oppressive regulation that only affects college athletes. No other student demographic on campus is subjected to this kind of restriction. So it's important that we start talking about it not in the sort of paternalistic terms of we're allowing them to do something. What we're going to do is we're going to stop telling them that they can't and holding them to a different standard. The NCAA bylines are built on oppressive regulations, many of which are convoluted in form and as comprehensible as hieroglyphics. Walter Byers himself faulted the organization for its unworthy treatment of athletes. Even so, unlocking the earning potential of NIL could be a game changer. ESPN analyst Seth Greenberg, however, is not entirely sold on the idea. NIL will not impact the number of players people think because there are very few people that move the needle. Uh, there'll be opportunities for athletes to run camps and clinics and make you know certain appearances, uh, but it's going to be few and far between. So like a player is going to have to decide, or am I going to be more concerned with NIL? I'm more concerned with making sure I do what I'm supposed to do academically, work on my game and continue to improve. So that in a big picture, that, you know, not short term, but in a big picture, my, my brand has greater value. When I mentioned to Tammy that all this effort may only benefit a small percentage of players, she cut me off. Well, that is another example of, why the, of how the NCAA has formed this conversation so perfectly around what they want. Is there, oh, well, it'll only benefit these certain kids and, and you know, they're going to get drafted anyway. So, you know, what are we doing here? It's actually, that's, that is 100% incorrect because what is, what kids are not allowed to do now include having a YouTube channel that they could have had in high school and they have to, they have to stop it before they go to school because it's considered an impermissible benefit. 
they can't, if they have a, an interest in music, they can't get a music contract or be able to record or sell their music in the off season. The restrictions that have been put on college athletes and have um, disproportionately affected the kids that aren't the big names because they are being prevented from making any kind of money in the only window that most of them have to do so. There is no question that, as the NCAA so lovingly phrases it, most athletes will go pro in something other than sports, leaving athletes a very small window to capitalize on their status. While Tammy and Seth believe that the value of NIL will correlate to performance, Tammy also foresees a much broader range of beneficiaries. Maybe you've got a kid who's the third string tackle at the University of Alabama who's not going to make any money from somebody specifically because of Alabama, but maybe he's from a small town in Oklahoma and one of the small town five and dime places want to, you know, use his, use his face to advertise something. That doesn't take any money out of the NCAA. That doesn't take any money out of the University of Alabama, but he's not allowed to do that. So I think the first thing we have to do is start talking about this conversation in terms of what we're really talking about. And it's not the small sliver of kids who are going to go pro and are getting denied 50,000 car dealership deals. It's every other kid, including ones who are not on scholarship. That's the thing that doesn't get talked about either, is the same kid who's a walk-on and is not allowed to, you know, have a, have a lunch at a house of somebody that may be considered a booster, is held to the same restrictions as somebody who is having their college paid for. Mm, that's a very, very good point. I think so. <laughs> yeah, even walk-ons too. You're not even getting the benefit of that scholarship. Yeah, and that's why when they talk about parity, you've got a, a walk-on at the, in the same locker room as, you know, the starting quarterback at, you know, at Kyler. you got Kyler Murray and a walk-on in the same locker room, and they're both prevented from selling their shoes. You know, you can't tell me that's fair. That's not parity. Don't talk to me about parity. It doesn't exist. <laughs> parity. This is a staple guiding principle for the NCAA and amateurism. By prohibiting athletes from monetizing off their athletic ability, notoriety, and NIL, a level playing field is preserved across all institutions. Players remain objective when selecting a school, and no school holds an advantage in the decision-making process. Yeah, right. This perfectly aligns with the common designations of power conference and mid-major conference, and explains why only one school outside of the Power Five has won a college basketball title in the last half century. That school was the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, or UNLV, coached by the late Jerry Tarkanian, a Hall of Famer who once said, quote, nine out of 10 schools are cheating. The other one is in last place, unquote. Walk-ons or non-scholarship players are often glossed over in these conversations. So, too, are partial scholarship athletes, who actually comprise the majority of all college athletes. This will be covered more in-depth in Parts 3 and 4, in examining the true value of a scholarship, or lack thereof. But what's important to note is that athletes who receive little financial support from their institution are still bound by the same rules and regulations as those on a full ride, 
So the argument for a scholarship as fair or justifiable compensation doesn't exist. The simple gesture of saying yes to NIL compensation would put athletes back in the driver's seat so they can pursue an income that is both needed and short-lived. In doing so, the schools, conferences, and the NCAA would not be impacted financially. The problem, rather, lies with control. Hedging just a little could open the floodgates to an increasing number of concessions, or so the NCAA likes to make everyone think. In response, several states have taken the lead, with California Governor Gavin Newsom signing into law the Fair Pay-to-Play Act last fall, on September 30, 2019. Colorado and Florida joined the cause earlier this year. Backed into a corner, the NCAA responded by announcing that it will review and amend its policies effective for the 2021-2022 school year. As progressive as this sounds, NIL is another rules obstacle course that athletes must try and navigate. For example, athlete endorsements cannot influence attendance at a specific institution. Athlete endorsements cannot conflict with those at a specific institution. Athlete endorsements must be commensurate with market value, whatever that means. All of these statements are both broad and restrictive, and much like the current bylaws, they'll be difficult to enforce and to comply with. There is also the matter of managing these endorsements. Athletes like Zion Williamson, with the potential for a windfall of offers, would benefit from having someone to field, track, and leverage each deal, which in Seth's eyes may open a new can of worms. They're going to have representatives. You've got to understand those representatives, they're going to come out of the woodwork. And those are, they're going to have what I call representative wannabes, agent wannabes, and they're going to make all these ridiculous promises to these young people, and then they're not going to be able to fulfill them, and then you're going to see lives ruined. Even professional athletes have been swindled. The most notorious case involved Peggy Ann Fulford, a wealthy financial advisor who ultimately bilked millions from big names like NBA champion Dennis Rodman, NFL Pro Bowler and Heinzman Trophy winner Ricky Williams, and NBA veteran Rashad McCants. When Rodman was enshrined into the Basketball Hall of Fame, Fulford was in attendance. She was the only person Rodman kissed when called to the podium, and was the first person he acknowledged in his speech. That moment, and an estimated $1.2 million, is something he'll never get back. Furthermore, beyond a vetting process, there will need to be a clear distinction between agent and endorsement manager, because college athletes are still not permitted to have representation. Even if NIL seamlessly comes to fruition, many have vocalized that the best course of action is to move away from the NCAA entirely, as far back as 2014, Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban has repeatedly shared his belief that the G League, formerly the D or Developmental League, also called the Minor League of the NBA, would be a much better fit for elite prospects, especially one-and-done players. Critics have long pandered the one-and-done model, the small subset of players seemingly destined for the NBA who spend only one season in college, much like Williamson. Ironically, the one-and-done player is a direct consequence of the 2006 Collective Bargaining Agreement, or CBA, between the NBA and the NBA Players Association, who jointly imposed a minimum age restriction of 19 to quell an influx of players making the jump directly from high school. 
arguments go both ways. Kevin Garnett, the late Kobe Bryant, and LeBron James are vaunted success stories, but Kwame Brown, Robert Swift, and Sebastian Telfair are equally renowned failures. The NBA and the NBA Players Association have discussed eliminating the age limit as part of the next CBA, but in the meantime, Cuban's idea of developing the most elite prospects within the NBA family has finally started to gain some traction. In 2018, the G League introduced a new professional path program, also called the Academy. This decision was less about Cuban and more about the National Basketball League of Australia, or NBL, which successfully implemented its Next Stars program the same year, luring top talents such as RJ Hampton and Terry Armstrong, ranked number 5 and 41 by ESPN in the 2019 class, overseas. Lamelo Ball of the eponymous Ball family also made the leap, after his father Lavar's attempt to start the Junior Basketball Association, or JBA, floundered and silently folded after one year. The G League, in an effort to keep high-caliber players on U.S. soil, decided to counter. Their initial offer was lackluster. While many details have been sparse, what is known is that player contracts were initially in the realm of $125,000 for the five-month season. There were no takers. Hampton reportedly earned upwards of $500,000 with the NBL. The G League spent the next year retooling and came back with a new plan and a new figure. $500,000. The matching salary seemed to do the trick. Five players have already committed to the program, including Jalen Green, ESPN's top-ranked player in this year's class. Salary aside, players will also be eligible to participate in the Summer League, attend year-round education programs in career management, and enroll in a scholarship program for higher education. There are a few precarious details. Under the current structure, prospects will be assigned to a select team, a separate squad that will also incorporate veteran players. The team will not participate in league play, and instead take part in 10-12 to 12 exhibition games against other league teams, international clubs, and NBA academies. Even with the fusion of unseasoned and experienced, the small schedule pales in comparison to the 30-40 to 40 game calendar utilized by most college programs. Most worrisome is that the academy, designed for elite prospects, is a one-and-done module. Players are only allowed one season in the academy, and then must go elsewhere. Ideally, that would be the NBA draft, but for a player like Kai Soto, who was the 63rd-ranked prospect in this year's class when he committed to the program, one year may not be enough time to thoroughly develop. This concerns Seth as well. Here's the deal, and it's very, very simple. Again, Jalen Green is a special talent. Uh, you know, I'm not, there's no guarantee for those other three guys. It's not like they're they're locked for sure NBA players. So like if they don't make it, if they don't make it, where do they go back to? Where do they go back to? You're going to see a lot of guys who think they're pros. They're not pros. The NBA is a very exclusive club. It is not for everyone. And uh, you're going to see a lot of young people's lives be impacted in a negative way, unfortunately. Following the announcement of the Academy, 
the G League published a Q&A with program lead Allison Feaster. Feaster was a four-year star at Harvard and a member of the first 16 seed to ever defeat a one seed in the NCAA tournament, when the Crimson knocked off top-ranked Stanford in 1998. She then went on to have a successful decade-long career in the WNBA, leading the now-defunct Charlotte Sting to the finals in 2001. Understanding both the importance of education and uncertainty of a professional sports career, she directly addressed both issues during the Q&A, stating, quote, When this professional path was announced, one of the criticisms was that it may diminish the emphasis on education. As someone who played four years in college and then professionally, a big component of this path is the education and the off-court development that these players receive. There's scholarship and other career opportunities they receive that are amazing. Once a player is in the NBA family, they have access to different initiatives and career development programs. I was a recipient of one of those programs, and it changed my life. Unquote. I made several attempts to contact Allison to get more information on the Academy, but did not hear back. If I ever do get a chance to speak with her or anyone else associated with the program, I will release a bonus segment. There is a brutal reality, though, in that sometimes the best, the most experienced, the most highly decorated college basketball players still fall short of making it into the NBA family. In those cases, what happens next? For many, it's a lot of uncertainty. Next time on Jump Ball. Three seconds, Reynolds drives, shot, got it! He got it! Villanova wins! Villanova wins! Sometimes players are so interested in getting to the league, there's this difference in getting to the league and staying in the league. They want you in easy classes that will keep you eligible, qualify them for their bonuses, and minimize your overlap with your practice game and travel schedule. I had to take my cadaver anatomy class in the summer because I couldn't work it around college football. And I wasn't even one of the players. We wanted it to be very clear what we're doing. Professional collegiate league. Clearly these people are paying college athletes. Jump Ball is written and produced by me, Steve Zacco. Our music is composed by Hayden Olmsted. Special thanks to Molly Anity for editing and providing invaluable feedback. For more on this episode, please check out our website at jumpballpodcast.org. Jump Ball is a production of Studio Spaz.